Hello, and welcome to Activating Sustainability, the Anthesis podcast. I'm your host, Chris Peterson. Today, we have a special podcast and discussion with three of my colleagues at Anthesis Group. Stuart McLaughlin, our CEO, M. Armstrong, Executive Director and DEI Lead for North America, Dean Saunders, Director out of the UK. I was particularly excited about the discussion given the moment we are in as a company, as sustainability practitioners, and as humanity. We're seeing so much change, and in the discussion, we really get into what do we think is going on, what do we think is happening and why, and how best to respond as an organization and as individuals. Further, this deepening of commitments is manifesting an thesis with our own B Corp certification, partnership with Palatine Private Equity, and Anthesis setting its own goal to support our clients to avoid, reduce, and remove at least three gigatons of CO2 emissions by 2030. This type of bold action is what we need to be successful, and it's exciting to see more organizations moving in this direction. That's enough for me. Let's get into the discussion. Well, welcome to the podcast. Thanks all so much for doing this. Thanks, Chris. Great to be here. Great to be here. Thanks, Chris. Happy to be here. So maybe to start, just what is your view of what's happening in this moment? What have your experiences been, perceptions, et cetera? Maybe, Dean, do you want to kick us off with that? Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, how can you describe what we're experiencing currently in our world of sustainability and sustainability advisory? You know, I've been doing this work for about 20 years or so, and at no point in that period have we seen in a sense, a coupling of acceleration and amplification. And by that, I mean that not only are things speeding up and there's a sort of an increasing impatience on the part of our clients to, to move faster, but there's also an amplification in terms of the scale of the ambition and the sheer number of organizations that are signing up to new commitments and wanting to make a real difference in this area. And I think that particularly as we come into the first part and we're already a, a quarter into 2021, Probably for me, the two really important points, I think, are that there is a shortage of solutions. There's now, I think, a lot of analytical data that makes the case very clearly for needing to take action. And I think what our clients are looking for are providers of smart solutions that can help them and can keep up with the pace of their ambition. And I think what is the last point, what I'm particularly excited about is a re- I see a, a reinvigoration of the marketing community as in, in certain of our clients, but you know, particularly those with consumer brands. And, and it's great to see marketing people wrestling with these topics, engaging with these topics and looking how they can build them into the way they, they create commercial value and drive the commercial performance of organizations by integrating some of the externalities uh, that have become now so kind of mission critical to them operationally and now being driven into the, uh, the commercial part of the business. So. You know, really, in a nutshell, I would say that this is one of the most exciting times in my professional working life in sustainability, because we're really seeing an ambition and backing that ambition up with the investment levels that are required to achieve the objectives that are so important to all of us on this podcast. Yeah, that backing up piece is such a critical part, which is exciting to see. And Emma, is that what you're seeing in the US as well? Yes, exactly. You know, I similarly have been working in this field for a long time and we've seen growth over the last decade for sure in companies making and delivering sustainability commitments, but that has been relatively incremental, you know, quite linear. And I would describe what we're seeing now as exponential, it's been kind of an explosion of 
new companies who really haven't embarked on their sustainability journey yet, wanting to rapidly get up to speed and set meaningful commitments. And no longer are we seeing this kind of, you know, slowly getting into the process and incrementally making small advances. I think we're seeing companies coming in and just wanting to make big commitments immediately, which is very heartening to see. And I think, you know, we and Thesis have a really important role to play in helping our clients to do that. And then we're seeing companies who are more advanced in their journey making you know very ambitious very bold new commitments and heartingly i think they're doing that and they really are seeing the role that they can play in helping their peers and helping other companies to to move the needle so we're seeing a huge amount i think of willingness to collaborate to share experiences and just to help all corporations to move forward among those those larger more established companies and Emma, are you seeing that primarily in kind of the classical environmental definition of sustainability, or are you seeing that broader expanding definition of it, including social and governance? Yeah, so here in the US, I mean, thinking about kind of climate as a theme, certainly what we're starting to see, you know, amongst kind of the mainstream sustainability community is a, a recognition that, you know, climate change is not just a, an environmental concern, something to be concerned about but that it is a social issue and that fundamentally, you know, humans are impacted by climate change and different groups and different communities are impacted to different extents. And so what we're starting to see, and I think to some extent as a result of some of the events of 2020, is that our clients are looking to actually weave social equity and justice type issues into their climate strategies and really broaden the way that they're thinking about and committing to climate action. Yeah, exciting to see that expansion of it and that integration. And Stuart, taking that global and thesis view, how do you see this playing out around the world? I can actually beat both Dean and Emma because I remember studying climate science 35 years ago. And I, I think what's interesting to observe over that time is I, I think we've probably spent the best part of 20 years trying to move a market from denial to belief, maybe even 25 years. And perhaps we thought then that, you know, once we get people into a place of belief, then everything was going to be fine. You know, everybody would know what to do. And then all of a sudden people said, okay, we get it. We understand the science. What do we do? And then the market said, well, actually, we're not sure what we do. And then we try to do stuff and there's a very high sort of failure rate. And then I think the market sort of went into a, and this, this is, I think, common globally from my observations, market went into sort of this place of believing it, but perhaps being passengers because they felt that actually it was going to be somebody else's problem. You know, the, the scientists, for example, they, you know, they've got it covered or there'll be some kind of silver bullet technology that comes through and deals with it. And I think what I've observed over the last two to three years is that global markets have moved from being passive and sort of believing passengers to passionate practitioners and people who really want to now get things done. And it's really interesting over the last year, you know, just hearing some of our colleagues saying, you know, for 20 years, I've been trying to persuade our clients to just sign up to a single sustainability target or KPI. And now they want to put out targets on a monthly basis. And it feels to me like we've been pushing this way back and back and back for decades. And at some point it had to crash over the top of us. 
And it feels like that's what's happened. We can debate whether that is the pandemic or all sorts of other things that have happened over the last two to three years, but it seems to crash over top of us now. And of course, now there's the realization that we have an incredibly short window in this, what we call this decisive decade to actually make the pivot. And I believe that we're seeing a global response. You know, there are different characteristics in different parts of the world, but the general theme is one of acceptance and response and needing to drive action. And I, one of the areas I find particularly exciting is just sort of observing which institutions are able to act fast enough to be able to deliver material change. And I used to think that was business because I felt that business was the, the only real institution that was powerful enough, agile enough to be able to deliver the change in time. But now I'm starting to think it's brands. Brands have to respond so quickly to customer behaviors and also to the investment community. We see lots of action when it comes to brands and that's a global phenomenon. Yeah, and you know, maybe to unpack that piece, you mentioned we could debate it for hours and we can't, but we'll be interested to hear what are some of the fundamental parts of that change that we're seeing. As you said, Stuart, we've been making these arguments for a long time. So what's making that click? now yeah so i think it's where the whole combination and the financial community has most certainly woken up to the the risk and the opportunity i think that what was seen to be a sort of fairly peripheral even cosmetic subject up to three four five years ago as now it's overused term but it's gone mainstream so organizations now looking at this as something that is either going to put themselves into growth mode or into decline that their operational efficiencies are dependent upon sustainability, such as energy, water, and waste, that their brand value is, is dependent upon sustainability, that their, the risk and resilience of their supply chains are dependent upon sustainability. So it's like, I remember people saying 10 to 15 years ago that, you know, when it comes to sustainability, fortune favors the brave. But I think to be honest now, if you don't embrace sustainability, then you seem to be fairly foolish and the investment community understand that. So I think that that has certainly delivered a significant shift but I, I think and dean is very well placed to talk about this but I, I do think that consumer behavior is changing dramatically and i think that employee pressure is also changing when the recent research that i, I read last week and you know, over 70 percent of gen z globally are saying that they will not work for a company unless they feel that the organization they're working for is alive to sustainability and making a difference dean picking up on that how our brands respond to that. And then also we cannot ignore the fact that we just came or are in still at the hopefully tail end of a global pandemic and kind of the impacts of that. Are you seeing that as part of the triggering element here? Well, I, I think it, one has to be cautious, of course, at this stage already starting to draw conclusions. And we still see parts of the world that are, uh, that are suffering immeasurably from the consequences of the pandemic. And yes, some of us here in certain parts of the world are beginning to experience something of a sort of post-lockdown easing, but we're still very much having to, to come to terms with that. And indeed, one of the really positive things I think we're seeing is big discussions around how those of us in certain parts of the world can assist in addressing the topic uh, in other parts of the world which need our assistance. But I do think, Chris, to your point, there is a psychological or a sociological truth about response to crisis. And, you know, 
the periods after the great wars in the 20th century that led to uh, innovation and rethinking, social rethinking. In the First World War in the UK, you know, during the First World War, women first went to the factories to work to support the war effort. And that then opened up incredible social change in Britain as women entered the, the workforce and, and gained more independence. So, you know, how could one, however, balance the, the positive outcomes of such a disastrous war where so many lives were lost? So, so treating that with caution, I do think that disasters and crises mark sort of moments in time where there's almost a kind of alignment of a sort of collective permission or permissibility to do things differently. And I think very early on during this crisis, we heard people using phrases like build back better, which, you know, strikes at the heart of what it is to be human is that we will overcome. And there's a sort of an almost infinite potential that we have for hope. And I think to come back to your point on brands, one of the really interesting things I've seen over, over the years when brands are connecting with social and environmental topics, there've been two strategies. Sometimes there's a strategy of sort of fear. If you don't buy this brand, uh, then this won't happen or this won't happen. And then there are other narratives of narratives of hope uh, that when you buy into this brand, when you buy into our business, these changes will happen. And I think that as more and more companies which have big brands, global brands in particular, that have scale and can really impact the world, be a real force for good, you'll see more and more, I think, very compelling, creative, engaging narratives of hope. And of course, the challenge in that community will always be to calibrate the volume of the narrative with the volume of the operational commitment yeah because otherwise you start to get into some of this territory and i think we'll we'll certainly see some accidents along the way of people not getting that balance quite right and perhaps overclaiming or greenwashing as it's, as is often known but i think that notwithstanding i do agree with stuart that brands have a, a remarkable capability or they're in a very privileged position to connect with the hearts and minds of people and, and actually through encouraging people through something as simple as making a purchase act to be having themselves through their consumption a positive impact on the world and a hopeful impact on the world. And one of maybe is the last point, which I think, you know, very interestingly, every year Edelman run a trust barometer study. And for the first time uh, this year, and there's a, there's a sort of matrix of institutions in our society that are seen by citizens as having the capabilities to make things happen, but are also trusted to make things happen. It was interesting to see that companies just for the first time slipped into that sweet spot as being understood to be able to actually make a difference and actually being entrusted to make a difference. Now, whether that's because of a dearth of trust in other institutions, be that government or NGOs, but I, I thought it was quite an interesting development. And that study also goes on to show, you know, that public expect business leaders. So let's count ourselves among that group to be right there at the front leading and finding the solutions to some of these problems. So I think in short, what I would say is that, yes, we're coming out of a disaster. We're coming out of a tough time. And I think that there is a collective design alignment of permission across sources of capital, the C-suite, citizens, government to say, yes, we all need to align and we do this, we move forward differently. And then secondly, I think there is this fascinating, infinite capacity that we have to create a future narrative for ourselves, which is full of hope. And that's a brilliant resource because it's inexhaustible, I think. I'm glad to hear the continued optimism.
It's kind of shocking in the sustainability space that we can keep going with that. And maybe it's kind of a naive interpretation, but I always think about that pivot between business brands is the individual and how does the individual get involved in that? And that kind of triggers for me, Emma, a picture you sent out last year of just the black sky at 10 o'clock in the morning. I think you were teaching your kids in the backyard in the Bay Area. And I know from our conversations, that idea of climate change really becoming personal at this stage. And maybe do you want to speak to that? Absolutely, Chris. Yeah. I mean, I think for so long, those of us have been trying to convince our clients, convince people that climate change is real and it's going to happen. For so long, it just was this kind of abstract thing out in the future. And it was really hard for people to apply any sense of urgency to it when it seems so far away and, you know, in time and geography. And I am based in the Bay Area and I would say 2020, yes, we, we dealt with the pandemic, but we also dealt with the climate change crisis in real time. We experienced unprecedented heat. We experienced unprecedented wildfires for, you know, the third year in a row. And every single person in California was directly impacted by those events. Certainly some people more than others. And I think that, you know, again, just kind of speaking from the California context, all of us are taking those personal experiences into work with us, right? Whether we are employees of a company wanting to push the company to do more, to take action, whether we are executives of a company that have the ability to, you know, make those big commitments and put resources behind it. There is now, I think, this consciousness that, okay, climate change is not abstract. It's not in the future. It's not somewhere else. It's right here and it's happening right now. And I think that's having a huge impact on the, the sense of urgency that certainly, for example, the big technology sector clients that I work with in the Bay Area are bringing to commitments that they are making. And now, you know, we're not in wildfire season yet, but we're now kind of facing a summer with very little water. California has just recently issued a state of emergency around the water shortages. So again, in 2021, we'll, you know, we'll be dealing with those issues as well. It strikes me as a theme that I'm seeing across the board of this pivot from sustainability being philanthropic and altruistic around how do we save the polar bears to how do we protect ourselves? And I think it's really interesting seeing the compare and contrast between the Obama administration that was very much save the polar bears and the Biden administration coming in that is, this is about green jobs. This is about harnessing business. This is about protecting yourself and your family going forward. And I'm wondering if that's kind of what you all are seeing as well, or if that resonates with you. Yeah, I mean, we're at an inflection point. And I think the two have moved from denial, as we've, we've spoken about, to you know, a less bad agenda, perhaps to a doing good agenda, to, to a place now where it seems to be something that is existential. It's a big shift in a short period of time. And you know, I know that one of the realities that seems to have hit home is that we are now the first generation that have all the unequivocal facts at our fingertips around in particular climate change. And we are the last generation to be able to do anything about it. And it's the realization of the responsibility that we have at this extraordinary moment in time. And I think that people are realizing that 
that responsibility is a burden on the shoulders of leaders. But actually, we're all leaders. You know, when we when we're in a shop thinking about whether we're going to buy a garment of clothing or some food with a particular type of packaging, people are taking leadership decisions in the context of where we are taking our planet, or more importantly, perhaps how we balance planetary needs with people needs with prosperity. And it's a, it's equipping people with the information they need to understand what is the right balanced leadership decision, whether you're the leader of a business or in government, in the White House, or whether you're making a purchasing decision. These are all leadership decisions. And how do we make those decisions to get the right balance in the middle of planet, people and prosperity? And I know we want to kind of pivot to the activator agenda that I know all of you are really intimately involved in. And, you know, maybe to set that up and just pick up on a couple of your pieces, Stuart, could you define the challenge of the decisive decade for us and what that looks like? Yeah, sure. I mean, we call it decisive decade. In fact, it was great to hear Joe Biden use the phrase a couple of weeks ago. Nevertheless, it's, it's getting some traction. So we call it decisive decade because what happens over the next 10 years will determine what happens over the next thousands of years. Hence this concept of this pivot point in, in history. And so... If you look at the trajectory that we need to be on to get anywhere close to the Paris Agreement targets, the amount of decarbonisation that's going to happen in the next 10 years is extraordinary. And hence the reason why we see so many of our clients setting very ambitious net zero targets. And for a lot of those clients, they don't know how they're going to get to that target. And that is a bold decision from a leader to be able to set a target where actually there just aren't good examples out there in the world. You know, we're all pioneering now. And that's one of the reasons, of course, why the accelerators and the incubators are chucking out the most amazing technology because that technology is trying to get into that gap to be able to bridge from what we know now in terms of what is possible versus where we know that we've got to get to in a partnership with our clients. And this is all about action. So... And thesis was set up eight years ago, and it was really born out of a lot of frustration. It's born out of the frustration of so much talk about sustainability and not enough action. And so we looked into why there wasn't enough action and why there was such a high failure rate when organizations took what was then a bold step in terms of trying to implement sustainability. And we try to piece together an organization that we think is set up for the decisive decade in terms of making stuff happen. And we realized as we put the components of this puzzle together, that it's a lot more than just advisory. So we didn't want as an organization to be put into the sort of consultancy box because it's all about activating. And we wanted a word that described what we were doing and uh, what we felt the world needed. And, and we came up with the word activator. And so hence the reason why, you know, we've got activator strategy and we've got chief activator officers and, and you see activator across a lot of our branding. But it is, as the word suggests, it's about activation. It's about making things happen in a different way at speed to deliver the change that is required during this decisive decade. Dean, I know you're leading a lot of that activator work. Maybe could you unpack that and speak to some of the pillars within that, what it's really going to take to make it happen? Sure. Yeah, with pleasure. I'm not really leading that work, but I'm certainly uh, involved in uh, as a sounding board to some of my colleagues. A call out to Peter Askew, our chief activator officer, for work that he's doing on shaping that agenda, which I think is critical because 
it provides all of the insight that we need in order to be able to do what we're really aiming to do, which is to help our clients achieve what we would call sustainable performance. Sustainable performance is that coming together of the relevant material sustainability issues that are going to have an impact on the sustained and continued success of our client partners. And one of the things that we learned that led, I think, to the activated thinking was that the kind of classic traditional consulting offer wasn't working. There were a number of studies that showed the extremely high failure rate of sustainability projects that were being recommended in via PowerPoint, you know, by consultants, and they just weren't getting the traction and they weren't translating into activation and into implementation. And so I think that we realized that there was a need just to pick up on some of the points that Stuart was making. Our clients, our partners, through whom we achieve our impact, needed solution providers who were able to wrestle with the the challenges of making the case, of delivering, of putting it into action. And I think all of the people who've come together within the framework of Anthesis want that. We don't just want to consult in, we want to see real change. And that's a big motivator for us as a team. Many of us in our professional careers have left certain things. I mean, Stuart's a pioneer example of someone who knew already from his student days that he wanted to pursue this agenda. But some of us came later to the uh, to the journey because we wanted to make things happen. We wanted to make a change. And so I think that that, that notion of Activate is meaningful for us. It resonates with us because we want to see changes in the systems that aren't working. And that's not just about consultants. It's about getting alongside people, building relationships with clients, just being that trusted advisor who can actually come up with solutions. And I think the thing I find really fascinating about the work that we do, I mean, Stuart again mentioned this, the idea of leadership. The people we want to be supporting are the leaders who know how to drive the performance of their organizations, but they want more than that. They want to go further. And it was interesting, just to go back to the, the point on Biden, I was particularly struck by Biden's visit to the Carters this week. And Jimmy Carter has been a particular inspiration to me. I recommend his books to, to our listeners. Here's a man, here's a leader who shaped society back in the 70s with solar panels being installed on the White House, which were actually uh, subsequently uh, dismantled by his successor in the White House. But, you know, we need leaders who are that far ahead. I mean, <laughs> the 70s is quite some time before the decisive decade. Our role is to serve the challenging visionary leaders and give them everything we can to help them make this stuff happen in their organizations. And as we come back specifically on the agenda, the agenda is us basically doing two things. It's really just taking a step back and saying, well, what really needs to happen? What is the decisive decade in terms of the materiality? And we've identified these different systems around the regenerative use of land, the circular economy, and the sort of remaking of products. Uh, restoring carbon into the sinks where it needs to be, finding new ways to recharge and to provide energy to our economy. But really important in that, and I think coming back to the point Emma made earlier, is all of that in a way that not only leaves no one behind, it takes everyone forward with a real agenda and a real commitment to social progress and creation of economic opportunity for underserved communities through this transition to a green economy. So I think every one of us at Anthesis is just super excited about having a clear blueprint for our own agenda as part of our commitment to being a B Corp, bringing the decisive decade in, making a difference and activating sustainability 
uh, through our client partners. Thanks for that. That's really helpful. And Emma, bring that down to the client level. We've got the challenge. We've got the framework. What does that mean for our clients going forward that are trying to make this happen? So many different things. It's daunting, right? I mean, there's a huge amount of work that goes behind coming up with a bold new sustainability commitment and then communicating it internally and externally. And that's what 1% of the work that needs to be done. So there's so much to be done. There's so many things I could talk about. There's a few things I think that are really important for clients to do now if they haven't done it already. The first is to make sure that they are getting the right governance structure in place and at least the necessary amount of resources to apply to delivering on their commitments. And that's both in terms of, you know, staffing up within in the company, building capacity and understanding across the company, because as we all know, an individual or a group of individuals in a central sustainability team are not the people that are able to ultimately affect the change that needs to happen. That needs to happen across business functions, across the organization. And so really establishing those responsibilities and making sure that there are appropriate incentives at all levels within the business so that regardless of what your role is, you are incentivized to make positive changes around sustainability from the very top of the organization. So those incentives really need to to happen because that will help to hold people accountable for making change and it will help to integrate sustainability into the business of the business. One of the things that I think we're increasingly doing with our clients is partnering with them to look at how they might, you know, design and implement an internal carbon price. And, you know, that's kind of linked to the governance and incentives, but it's, it's really about, you know, again, kind of building the cost of carbon into the way that the organization makes financial decisions. So that governance piece is really important. I think one of the challenges that our clients face is dealing with the complexity of the standards and the complexity of the language and frankly, you know, the science around this this topic. And I see a really important role for us as, you know, people that are doing this day in and day out and really tracking the standards very closely. Actually, you know, a lot of us are involved in technical working groups to help to advance those standards. We have such an important role to help demystify this topic for our clients, uh, not just the, the individuals that we typically work most with who are sustainability professionals, but also, you know, again, people across those businesses who don't have sustainability related degrees like Stuart, right? So I think that demystification is just a really important role that we can play. I think that's great. Emma, you put that perfectly in terms of here's a logical way to structure this, because I think it can be just so overwhelming. And wondering, Stuart and Dean, is there anything you would add in terms of that advice for individuals, organizations, in terms of what's next? What's that first step that they should be taking? Yeah, well, uh, I think my prefix to, to my answer is going to be similar to Emma's, that it's, you know, it is kind of overwhelming. I mean, this is, this is one of the reasons why we like to use this sort of activator strategy and uh, what we call the activator journey, because it really teases out the priorities and it puts in place sort of sequence of activities to help organizations navigate their way through to the the relevant targets. In fact, we've developed software tools to do that at a city level and the software called Scatter because, you know, whether it's companies or whether it's governments or whether it's cities, they've got the same issues. So we are helping 
various cities around the world and look at, you know, what do they do first? Do they focus on renewables? Do they look at electrification of the public transport system? There's just so many different things you can do. And how do you go about them in what order without the economics falling over? And so there's lots of different dimensions there to be able to navigate. One of the things I am I'm super excited about is the influence that companies are having on their supply chains. So one of our clients, one of the world's biggest retailers, we've been supporting them to develop a strategy with their suppliers. They've got over 10,000 suppliers and they're linking the sustainability performance of their suppliers to the contractual terms, including the credit terms that they're offering. Uh, and that's been driven by Treasury, not the CSR department, but the Treasury department. And of course, we're so focused on the targets that are being set by nations under, for example, Paris and how they're tracking. But we forget that 50% of the carbon footprint of the world is with products. And so much of our individual and our national carbon footprint is outsourced to other countries. So business has got such an important role to play because, of course, the, the business value chain is horizontal. It's global. And that's the way it should be. Businesses are recognizing their responsibility and looking at how they can bring their entire supply chains into their strategy for them to be able to meet the kind of targets that they're setting. Now, of course, to be able to do that, you know, the first thing you need is data. You need really robust data. And that's why most of the first phase of any activated journey we do with a client is around the analytics. Let's get the evidence base. Let's get as efficiently robust data to be able to know which way you need to be stepping forward. That's why there's there's so much excitement at this next sustainability expertise in digital, because that's just such an important platform. Wonderful. And maybe one last question from me. You each use the term daunting to describe the kind of current context. And just curious, kind of what gives you hope and energy and the drive to kind of take on the challenges of the decisive decade? I kick it off if you want. I mean, I think it's tied in a bit to the previous point as a sort of, if you want a personal theory of change, which is, you know, as service providers, there is a finite resource, which is time and particularly concepts like the decisive decade, uh, make us think about that e even more. I, I suppose the, the decision is to think through in your relationships that you have with clients, you know, have you identified the ones who have the vision and the purpose, the determination and the talent to make things happen? And are we consciously dedicating time to those and serving those leaders exponentially? Because that is a leverage point. And I think that also then to your question, Chris, it, that gives me hope because those people are there. And it's not about C-suite, although, of course, there's leverage there. It's about individuals. And, and the thing that gives me hope is people. There are some amazing challenges out there and leaders out there. And finding them is always very exciting and then committing to them and building long-term relationships with them to help solve their problems and make them successful through the work that we do. It's the thing that, that brings satisfaction, but I think it also brings brings me hope because you see the, uh, the determination and the resilience of, of individual leaders. And, and that's always very inspiring. We'll make sure that Emma has the last word on this. So I will go next. There is something fundamentally exciting about being at the start of the next revolution. In, in the same way as I'm sure the architects of the industrial revolution were pretty motivated. To be within a community of amazing people who are designing this, this new model for a different future, it's got to be an exciting place to be. I mean, obviously the stakes are high 
we get it wrong. So people in our world are sort of dancing around between the sort of hope and excitement to this place of feeling daunted, to, to use the word that you, you've picked up on. But within the middle of that is a, is a place of, of great motivation. So, you know, I think that Jonathan Poet, I'm going to use one of his phrases. He said that we will only address the challenges of climate change and working in a model that is, that is assumed to be infinite and is not as finite if we are emancipated champions of hope. Because unless you are hopeful, people won't follow you. And we need people to follow us and the, the agenda that we believe is supremely important. I probably don't have anything quite so uh, lofty and philosophical to say, but you know, I guess I'd point to two things. One thing that gives me so much energy after so many years in the trenches is the way that I'm seeing our clients, and I, I mentioned this earlier on, collaborate with each other, collaborate with their customers, collaborate with their suppliers. Those partnerships hold huge potential to solve problems to come up with creative new solutions. And, you know, not that many years ago, sustainability was a competitive issue. You know, one brand didn't want to talk to another brand about what they were doing or thinking about doing because they wanted to, you know, take the glory for that. And I, I do think that we've gone beyond that now and just as huge potential and huge collective influence that companies can have if they work together. And, you know, I'm really happy to see Anthesis be a part of those multi-stakeholder partnerships. And the other thing I'll say, and I'll just end with, and it's a little cliched, but I'm just going to point to the young people. <laughs> um, and I think it was Stuart earlier that, that spoke to the importance that Gen Z and you know younger people coming into the workforce are placing on the sustainability credentials of their prospective employers and their actual employers. You know, I look at the young talent that we're bringing into Anthesis and it is so inspiring and amazing to see the passion that they bring, the knowledge, the understanding that they bring to the table. And so, you know, that gives me hope that we're going to solve this, figure this out some way or another. Well, on that note, I will just say thank you all very, very much for the incredible insights, lots to think about, lots to reflect on, uh, and lots to give us lots of hope. So. Thank you all very much. Thank you all for listening. Please check out the links in the description for our website and to find out more. And let us know what you thought of the discussion and what you are seeing in your own world. Stay safe and keep well.